You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Good morning. Let me reiterate what's been extended to you already from Jeannie to you, and that is just a word of welcome. Glad for you to be with us this morning. For those of you who have not had a chance to meet, perhaps this is even your first Sunday. My name is Eric Bancroft, and I have the privilege to be one of the pastors here alongside Ronald and Chris. Uh, Thankful to have you here. One of my things I really enjoy doing that perhaps some of you enjoy as well is getting to know people's stories. Uh, spending time with them. In fact, uh, one of the opportunities that we provide on a regular basis is we, numbers of us, all go out to lunch together afterwards. In fact, at the end of the service, you'll see on the screens behind me, you'll see locations for where we're going today for lunch. Uh, That's a great place to get to know people, to be able to find out their stories and ask them questions and where are they from and what have they been doing and just life experiences that they've had. And this is a part of getting to know people. You'll find that the people seated around you are intriguing, various in their experiences, really colored in some of the things that they've had to go through. One of the things that I enjoy doing in regarding getting to know these people is also getting to know the lessons that come from that. It's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed reading biographies. I don't know how many of you enjoy biographies. I enjoy reading biographies because biographies provide me the opportunity to kind of live through other people's experiences, both intriguing as to things that they've gone through that I will never go through, both good or bad, as well as lessons that they've learned from those experiences that I hope to learn without having to go through those experiences. Over the years, I've read different biographies and have learned various lessons from them and have watched and seen different things. I remember in my 20s reading the biography of Malcolm X and learning a number of things from that biography, one of which is just the practical helpfulness of leaving a light on at night and how light can discourage otherwise characters who would seem to do something to your property or person. Reading the biography um, of the childhood soldier story, A Life Gone, A Life Way Gone, Memoirs of a Boy Soldier by Ishmael Bea. And I remember weeping as I read that book and learned how the author was kidnapped and forced into being a child soldier and forced to do horrific crimes against his fellow countrymen and women. And then life having to put back together after those years and how hard that is. I've never experienced anything like that. The book titled Here I Stand, a story of the biography of Martin Luther, this German priest during the 1500s who was so disillusioned with the very system of religion he was in that he finally just stood up and had enough and unbeknownst to him that God would use him to cause a reformation known as the Protestant Reformation, protesting the abuses of the church. The lessons to learn from his courage. Undoubtedly, one of the most favorite biographies I've ever read is a two-volume biography by Arnold Dalimore, a Canadian pastor who wrote two significant volumes in the life of George Whitfield. 
George Whitfield was a man who lived in England for a time, but then moved over here to the United States, and he'd go back and forth, a name perhaps unknown to most of you in this room. Perhaps you've heard of names like John or Charles Wesley or others. George Whitfield, interestingly, God blessed his preaching ministry so radically that on human record, there is no other greater report of a response to the preaching of the Word of God except the book of Jonah, where the entire people of Nineveh responded to Jonah's preaching. There's no other human record in all of human history of the response to the preaching of the Word of God as there is to the preaching of George Whitfield. He was a friend and a contemporary to Benjamin Franklin, somebody who was a deist at best, but not a Christian, who would, would be so overwhelmed by George's preaching that he would give of his own money, intending not to give at all, but he just wanted others to hear this truth. And he would confirm the very people who be present to the thousands upon thousands in a day and age when there were no microphones or no speakers to project how critics would come to hear the preaching in order to mock the preaching, in order to interrupt the preaching, that they might just make a joke of George Whitfield talking about his lazy eye, but in coming how the Spirit of God would work in their hearts so radically they would be converted, and they would then go and preach the same message that they came otherwise to reject. Just a radical story. Learning people's lives, there's people seated around you, or people in print from days gone past is fascinating. It's, depending on the story, encouraging and sometimes depressing. Because you learn lessons about people's lives that are overwhelming. We come to the book of Hosea yet again this morning and are introduced to another biography. And initially when we read the book of Hosea, the first and the 12 minor prophets as you're finding your way there even now as I speak to you in your Bibles. The book of Hosea is initially tragic and sad because when we read this biography, we learn about his marriage to a woman named Gomer. And you're thinking, wow, if I thought I had marriage difficulties, this man and his wife are seriously jacked up. tragic and sad. But then as you keep reading this biography, you move from tragic and sad to surprising and depressing because then you learn actually the marriage story, this biography, is actually of a greater biography. This connection that God is making to the people of Israel. This metaphor of the reality of an even greater marriage, God's marriage to Israel. And then it becomes uncomfortable and humbling. Because you don't have to be in the text too long before you start to feel embarrassingly similar to some of the things described there. We begin to learn the lessons. The title of today's message is Reaping the Whirlwind from Hosea chapter 7 through chapter 10. Today's text is jam-packed and Honestly, it contains some verses that are incredibly difficult to kind of unpack because of the way in which they're describing the situation at the time. One commentator I read this week said in regards to some of our material this morning, quote, this is without question among the most vexing texts in the Hebrew Bible, end quote. 
That's always encouraging as a preacher of God's word. Like, well, if you don't understand it, how am I going to understand it? How are they going to understand it? But I'll do my best this morning. Now, for those of you that are new to Grace Church and you've not been with us, or perhaps you're just new to Christianity and you're exploring it, to give you a bit of a Dakota ring, a bit of a glasses to understand and see clearly, it is our practice at Grace Church to joyfully and committedly to go through God's word. We're in different books of the Bible. There's 66 books of the Bible over the span of 1,400 years. God, the divine author, is using different human authors, over 40 different authors, over the span of that many years to write this tapestry like a master conductor, an orchestra. Every piece is playing its part in this ultimate grand story, leading to this climax in the book of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Hosea plays a role in that. And if you're not familiar with the story of Hosea, let's understand it again by way of fresh perspective to be reminded. At the time of Hosea, the land of Israel is divided into these kingdoms. This one big kingdom has been split. David had a son named Solomon. Solomon became king. After a Solomon king dies, everything begins to tear apart. You think some family funerals are tragic and some reading of wills can get very corrupted? Like, do I get to keep the house? Do I get to keep the car? Who gets the bank accounts? Who gets the china? Who gets the family records? This is nothing. They're like, who gets the land? I'm not talking five acres. I'm talking thousands of acres. Who's in charge? The kingdom splits in half. And then for decades, one problem after another after another. This northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah... And Hosea is raised up by God, beginning his ministry to Israel, the northern kingdom, during the final days of Jeroboam II. It was a good time, or so they thought. They seemed prosperous. Everybody had jobs. Everybody's doing well. Everybody's land, crops were fruitful. Everybody seemingly was like doing well. Retirement accounts are going well. Things are seemingly successful. Lots of friends, lots of influence. And yet, it's a corrupt time. Jeroboam II eventually dies, and then the problems begin even worse. One king after another king after another king. And the reason why they keep repeating the kings is because they keep getting killed. I mean, imagine getting a job at work where you're asking, like, hey, so the manager here before me, why did he leave? Um, he was killed. Uh, I'm sorry, he was killed? Yeah, by a coworker. Is that coworker still around? He is. Yeah, I don't think I want that job. Except the way that they did this in this time, you know who was killing the kings? The guy who replaced him to become the next king. I mean, just like murder after murder after murder. And the whole system is corrupt. If you think of the book of Hosea, you could outline it like this. Chapters 1 to 3 is about the adulterous wife and the faithful husband. Chapters 4 to 14 is about adulterous Israel and the faithful Lord. We learn in chapters 1 to 3 of this micro-relationship, of the macro-relationship, of the faithful Lord and the adulterous Israel. 
For our purposes this morning, let's go through Hosea 7 through 10 and learn really three movements towards redemption as we see this progression. First of all, in Hosea chapter 7, the indictments of depraved crimes. The indictment of depraved crimes. Look with me at Hosea chapter 6, verse 11, the last verse of chapter 6, into chapter 7, verse 1. Hosea says, For you also, O Judah, a harvest is appointed. When I restore the fortunes of my people, when I would heal Israel, the iniquity of Ephraim is revealed, and the evil deeds of Samaria. For they deal falsely. The thief breaks in, and the bandits raid outside. These terms here, Israel and Judah, Ephraim and Samaria, these terms being used interchangeably. God blesses, and they show their thankfulness to God's blessing by sinning even more. Imagine that. Imagine asking for God's help at a job interview. And God gives you the job. And then you take the money that God gives you through that job, and you spend it on sinful pursuits. God you hears your cry and you pray for a relationship. And God gives a relationship and then you conduct yourself in immorality. Participating in sexual immorality. God keeps generously blessing his people. And they keep taking those blessings and corruptingly responding with sin. You just continue to see that their version of thankfulness to God is responding with sin. It's been said that God tests us when he gives us hardships and trials. That's true. You know, it's also true that God tests us when he gives us blessing and prosperity. How will we act? How will we respond? The Israelites failed this test repeatedly. You see this in chapter 7. Go back, if you would, to chapter 4. Look at what it says at the end of verse 1 of chapter 4. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love, no knowledge of God in the land. There is. What is there? There is swearing. There is lying. There is murder. There is stealing. There's committing adultery. So there's this contrast of what there is not. There's not faithfulness. There's not steadfast love. There's not knowledge of God. But there is swearing, lying, murder, stealing, committing adultery. This is a continued problem. And the indictment of these depraved crimes reaches the highest order. All of the ranks of society are affected. It's not just in the crowd, not just among the masses. It's even with the leadership. Go to chapter 7, verses 3 through 7. Look at what it says there. By their evil, they make the king glad, and the princes by their treachery. They're all adulterers. They're like a heated oven whose baker ceases to stir the fire from the kneading of the dough until it is leavened. On the day of our king, the princes became sick with the heat of wine. He's getting drunk so much. He stretched out his hand with the mockers. For their hearts are like an oven. They approach their intrigue. All night their anger smolders. In the morning it blazes like a flaming fire. All of them are as hot as an oven and they devour their rulers. All their kings have fallen and none of them calls on me. He's basically saying, hey, they spend their days drunk. They spend their nights plotting more crimes. The princes rise up to become kings only to be killed by the people who follow them. 
It's been said, so goes the leadership, so goes the people. It certainly proved true here with the people. It's not just the leadership, though, it's the people themselves. They do not seek help from the Lord, but look at what they do instead. Having a lot of problems, what do they do? Verse 11 of chapter 7. Ephraim is like a dove, silly, without sense. Calling to Egypt, going to Assyria. Go back to chapter 5, verse 13. When Ephraim, this is a synonym for Israel. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, Ephraim, where did Ephraim go? To Assyria, sent to the great king. He's not able to cure you or heal your wound. What's the problem here? The problem is this. They realize they have a problem. They realize they're exposed. And where do they take that problem? They go to either Assyria, a northern territory, or Egypt, a southern territory, and they appeal to someone other than God for help. Now, you've got to realize how crazy this is. What's Israel's relationship with Egypt? Uh, not a very good history. The last time we were back there, we were all made slaves. Hey, let's go ask them for help. I say it clearly to you like that because you can kind of think like, well, that's stupid. That's foolish. But that's what sin does. Sin makes you stupid. You do stupid things. What about Assyria? Oh, they're nice people. They're like a grandmother nation hugging you and just baking you apple pie. No. No, they make all their people slaves and wickedly devour them and destroy them. But they're like, hey, we need help from them. Let's go to Egypt or let's go to Assyria. Now, you might think right now, that's crazy. But can we just have a moment together? How often do we as God's people acknowledge we have a problem and seek out every possible person or professional in the world for help before we go to the Lord? How often are we wanting a quick fix and a good feel but not actually bringing these burdens, these sources of anxiety, these legitimate concerns to God? Opening his word and say, Lord, I want to hear from you. Would you help me? You created me. You know this world. It is your world. In whom can I trust? In whom will I depend on? I, I am to come to you. Too often the temptation we have today is just like the Israelites of old. We would rather look to some enemy places, some foreign lands, some people who do not intend to worship God to help us before we would look to the Lord. So we should be careful before we start to throw stones of condemnation and disappointment at a people long ago, 2,800 years ago, that we would see actually we find ourselves we're making the same mistake today. What we see in this text in Hosea chapter 7 is that blessing brought more sinful choices. This is a constant challenge. This continued recognition that what God does in giving grace with prosperity and provision are then often responded to with more disobedience and wayward living. And what you see here in the text that's so tragic is how commonly they act like 
They are committed, but they're not. They're not really committed. Look at what it says in verse 14 of chapter 7. They do not cry to me from the heart, but they wail upon their beds. What is this talking about? God says, hey, the Israelites understand they've got a problem. And they say to me, help us, but they don't really want me to help them. I think if we're honest, a lot of times, if we're not careful, our relationship to God can be really guaranteeing that God is the means to our happiness. But if we can find happiness through any other means, we'll take it. And we'll only go to God as long as we have some type of implied expectation that he will facilitate our happiness. It's not God we want, we just want happiness. We want stability, we want security, we want prosperity, we want health. Friends, that's how the Israelites treated God. God says, I know, I see. You don't really want me. You just want to return to everything being okay circumstantially. Sometimes we can wrongly interpret God's grace. And I think that's what's happening here is that this understanding, well, we know our God. He's a covenant God. We cry out to him and he'll hear our prayers. He'll forgive. That is true. But we should remember what scripture says. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Shall, what shall we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to it still live in it? I don't know how many of you have heard the name David Milch. David Milch is today, as I speak to you, 77 years old. Uh, David was a student at Yale University and eventually wanted to be a professor there and taught at Yale University. But interestingly, he changed careers and became a four-time Emmy-winning writer-producer who co-created the series NYPD Blue and HBO's show Deadpool, or excuse me, Deadwood. Before his career in Hollywood, as a professor at Yale, completely different life. And over the span of his life, for those three decades in Hollywood, he made over $100 million. You think, man. I wouldn't mind making $100 million in 30 years. But today, David, tragically, has not a penny to his name. He has $17 million in debt. $17 million in debt. All from gambling. And he's been put on a daily allowance, or excuse me, a, we a weekly allowance of $40 a month in the assisted living environment. Now, why do I reference this man? By no means to shame his name, but illustrate what is available publicly by information to say, how tragic is it for God to give someone so much and for a person to take that and to so tragically make so many bad decisions with it? Do we not see the same temptation? How is our heart tempted to travel down a path of depravity or sinfulness while being so blessed? Our health, our singleness, our finances, our marriage, our jobs. This takes us to the second movement towards redemption. 
The first one being the indictment for depraved crimes. The second one is the implications for destructive choices. This is Hosea chapter 8 and 9. Hosea chapter 8 summarizes their sinful actions of what's to come. Just look, if you will, at verses 13 and 14 of Hosea chapter 8. As for my sacrificial offerings, they sacrifice meat and eat it, but the Lord does not accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and punish their sins, for they shall return to Egypt. You want it? You got it. That's what God's basically saying here. For Israel has forgotten his maker and built palaces, and Judah has multiplied fortified cities. So I will send a fire upon the cities, and it shall devour her strongholds. Now, chapter 9 details the consequences of the rebellion. There's the loss of joy in verses 1 and 2. The loss of their land in verses 3 to 6. The loss of wisdom in verses 7 to 9. The loss of children in verses 10 to 16. And the loss of the Lord himself in verses 17. Look with me at chapter 9, verse 17. It says, my God will reject them because they have not listened to him. They shall be wanderers among the nations. Friends, to see this from a national problem to a personal one, do me a favor, keeping your finger in Hosea, turn to the book of Proverbs. Just to the left in your Bibles, right after the book of Psalms is the book of Proverbs. Look with me at Proverbs chapter 1. I want you to see something in Proverbs chapter 1. Because what ends up happening in Proverbs is that God is personified in the person of wisdom. And in Proverbs chapter 1, there is this cry, this invitation towards wisdom, this offering for help. But I want you to kind of see the rhythm of what happens. Look at Proverbs chapter 1, starting in verse 20. Wisdom cries aloud in the street. In the market, she raises her voice. At the head of the noisy street, she cries out. At the entrance of the city gate, she speaks. What does she speak? Verse 22. How long, O oh simple ones, will you love being simple? How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Verse 23. If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will wake, make my words known to you. Here's the summary, verses 20 to 23. God does not hide himself. He makes the invitation and the opportunity to learn from him open and available. He has given us his word. He's given us his people. He's given us his spirit. The opportunity is there, easily and readily accessible. But look what happens when people turn away from that invitation. And that's what he says next. Look at verse 24. Because I have called and you refuse to listen, stretch out my hand and no one has heeded. Because you have ignored all my counsel and would have none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when terror strikes you. When terror strikes you like a storm and your calamity comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but will not find me. Because they hated knowledge. 
and did not choose the fear of the Lord, would have none of my counsel and despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. For the simple are killed by their turning away and the complacency of fools destroys them. Verse 33, but whoever listens to me will dwell secure and will be at ease without dread of disaster. Friends, whether it's in Hosea, chapter seven and eight and nine, or whether it's in Proverbs, chapter one, God is graciously saying, here I am. Listen to me. Here is my word. Follow the path I have for you. Here is the relationship I am extending to you. And I will respond. I will listen. I will love and forgive. But you have to turn from your ways. There are some perhaps here today You want instead, perhaps by temptation, as any of us do, by temptation, more of a God of your choosing. You appreciate things like faith, grace. We sang songs earlier of mercy. You're like, yes, I want mercy. But the challenge is, A lot of times we want a God of our own choosing, our own making, our own crafting. Well, we can do whatever we want for as long as we want, no matter where we want to do that. But then expect at any moment we say, God, take me. God, forgive me. God, show mercy to me. God is somehow bound to be like, well, okay. The Lord is clearly teaching his word. That's not what the relationship with him is like. He is gracious in his invitation. And friends, it's worth realizing that. The relationship with God is through the means by which he describes and defines. How many here need to be forgiven? I do. I do. And I believe that you do as well. But that forgiveness is through the means of the offer of his son, Jesus Christ the Savior. His perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, where God pours out all the wrath that we otherwise deserve, he pours it out on his son, that he experiences all of the condemnation that he did not deserve, but we deserve crucified and buried in a tomb and then resurrected three days later that all those who would believe in him would be forgiven of their sins. Friends, I trust at some level you recognize you have fallen short. I have. The Bible describes this in Romans 3 that we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But are you hoping for a God to simply say, oh, well, bless your heart. 
you mean well. You tried well. You're not as bad as some other people I've got to deal with in this world, so you know what? You can, you can go. You're fine. No. God says, you are going to be fine if you turn to me and follow my way by believing in my son for the forgiveness of your sins. Until there is repentance, there cannot be forgiveness. Oh, but friend, if there is repentance, there is indeed forgiveness. And that takes us to this third movement here towards redemption. Hosea chapter 10. The indications of divine grace. These indications, you can see them. Look at chapter 12 of Hosea. Excuse me. Verse 12 of chapter 10 of Hosea. Go what it says there. Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up your fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. These are murmurs of hope, as we're going to see next week in chapters 11 through 14, that the Son of God's grace is promised to rise on the cold winter of their sinful choices. Verse 12 says, it is time. Time for what? To seek the Lord. It's interesting to acknowledge there the two parts to that. To seek and the Lord. Friends, the first problem that perhaps some of you are in right now is you're not actually seeking. You're trying. You're working. You think you can do. Humility requires you to acknowledge that that would not be true. And the second part is not just when you're ready to acknowledge that and you need to seek help, but where do you seek help from? In the Lord, to seek the Lord, finding hope not in yourself. Some of you know this in different states around the country. Florida is one of these states that has the three strikes law. And three strikes law, for those of you not familiar with the judicial system, I'm happy for you, and other family members of ours or ourselves and our past as well, we might know the three strikes law personally. The three strikes law is basically this understanding of the judicial law, which is, hey, first strike of a major committed felony you've done, there's going to be a consequence for that. Second strike of a committed felony, there's going to be a consequence for that. But just so you know, if you do this thing three times, you commit an egregious felony three times, the three strikes law, your sentencing will be even more extreme. And the idea is, is that it's supposed to deter criminals from committing three egregious felonies. Like, oh man, I don't want to do that because if I do that, I could be going to jail for life. Sadly, as a lot of sociologists and criminologists have recorded, that's not how it often works. I don't know many criminals who are like, you know what? Hmm. Let me just, before uh, tomorrow's bank robbery, let me just think this out for a second. Let's see, I went away for seven years. I got probation. Went away for five years. I'm still on probation. If I do this bank robbery tomorrow, I'm going to go away for life. Yeah, I should probably choose instead a more viable profession. Like, it's just, that's just not how these conversations work, right? I mean, sin makes you stupid. You do stupid things. You think, like, you're the exception. Like, I won't get caught, says every criminal who gets caught. And, I mean, we can just be honest. Like, some of us, that's our background. We understand that kind of relationship. Like, you just get that. You're like, yeah, I was stupid. 
But the idea of the three strikes law is, man, you only get one chance, you get a second chance. You don't get a third. You get a third, it's done. Here's the good news that I want you to see in the book of Hosea. God does not operate on a three strikes law. God's not tallying up how many offenses you have against him, how great those offenses are. And once you reach a certain limit, he's like, you know what? I'm done with you. I tried. You won't listen. There's no hope. I say this, why? Because some of you right now sit here under the sound of my voice and you feel that you're outside the capacity for God to care for you and reach you. You sit in a cloud of shame, an overwhelming guilt for sins you have committed or that you are committing, things that you have done, things that you would dare not to share with anybody here because you think no one else is like you or would understand you. I can just say as a pastor to somebody in this room, you'd be surprised how jacked up we all are. But I want you to see here in the text is that God does not operate like this. God loves to save sinners. His love is patient and persistent and consistent. May I remind you that the story here, the bigger picture of what's happening, is a marriage of Hosea and Gomer is illustrating. I mean, honestly, if you had a woman like Gomer as your wife, you're like, yo, we're done. We are done. We're never getting back together again. There's no reconciliation. You're on the streets. The last thing I'm going to do, Gomer, is pay off your debts. The last thing I'm going to do is buy you back as my wife. I've always been providing you this whole time. You can just sit and just sulk and just the wallow of your disgust. Yet Hosea goes back and buys her and loves her again. It's a picture of God's grace. It's unbelievable. What we see here in the book of Hosea, These 14 chapters is this collection of ministry for 25 years. Do you realize that? As pastors, we have these conversations, just to be honest, behind the scenes at Grace Church. We do a lot of member care. And we're like, hey, the thing with Janelle, it's been a problem for a couple weeks now. Janelle's like, why my life going to butt? There's no thing with Janelle. It's Tony Foreman we actually talk about. I mean, he's been a member here how long? We've been pastoring him for how long? We've been caring for him, loving him. He doesn't seem to get it. I mean, we've talked on this subject for three times, four times. (sighs) I'm not going to lie. I wouldn't be upset if he's like, you know what? Grace Church is not for me. You guys are a little heavy-handed. You're like so big on the Bible. I'm going to go find a church that's more loving. You're like, it's actually going to help us out because you're a bit of a headache. Just to be clear, it's not Tony Foreman. That's why I give Tony's example, because he's the exact opposite. Imagine God having this conversation, not for one year, not for two years, for 25 years. Why do I highlight that time? Because <laughs> I want you to think, if you think you know what patience is like, I think I know what patience is like. You and I have no clue. God's patience with the people of Israel for 25 years, continuing repeatedly to teach them, to show them, to love them, to speak to them. 
And here's the deal. They still would not listen. But God said, I'm not done with you. Here's a question you and I have to answer for ourselves. Are we listening? Are we listening? If we are, where do we turn? We don't turn to our resolution to stop doing and start doing. We turn to God and say, God, I cannot do this apart from you. My community group, for those who are new to Grace Church, they come to my house on Wednesday nights. If you're new to community groups or you're new to Grace Church, you can come to my house this Wednesday night. Right now we're going through the gospel-centered life. One of the things that we talked about this past week as we're talking about repentance is that sometimes the mistake to make in repentance is like this New Year's resolution mindset. You know what? I did this wrong. I will do better next time. I'm going to make a resolution with myself. I promise, God, you're going to be proud of me. Watch me. And God's like, all right, I can see how this is going to go. At what point are you going to acknowledge you can't do this without me? Friends, the grace of God is to show this to the people of Israel through the prophet Hosea under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to give it to us today that we would learn these same lessons. These indications of divine grace that God is doing a work. Here's a question to consider. If someone writes a biography of your life, what lessons will others learn from it? The question is not, will you make mistakes? You will, you have, you'll continue to. The question is, what will you do in light of those mistakes? What lessons will other people learn to imitate or to in any way turn from? And I hope and pray that the biography of your life will tell a story of not an amazing man or woman that you are, but an amazing God who reaches into your life through the power of the Holy Spirit, of the gift of his son that you've committed your life to for the forgiveness of your sins and a love for him, the perfect risen Savior, who's not only a model for us to imitate, but more importantly, he is a substitute for us. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. God draw you nearer to him through his word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.